Hello, and welcome to this edition of People in Transition. I'm your host, Bob Gerst. I've been hiring and mentoring executives, frontline employees, and job seekers for nearly 40 years through a host of transitions, some difficult, but most very good. This experience has given me a bird's eye view on a variety of trends, economies, industry disruptors, and transitions, big and small. It also brought me into contact with the thought leaders and decision makers you need to meet. Imagine knowing exactly what to do next and how to know it's time to make your big job change. We all know transitions can be scary, but it doesn't have to be. And it's even fun when you have actionable strategies and proven tactics to achieve the future you want. We'll share with you the tools and skills that can take your dreams to your next great job. So if change is on your horizon, you won't want to miss this discussion. Also, please subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss any future episodes. Catherine Lamb, thank you for being with us today on People in Transition. Ever since we met, I have been looking forward to this discussion, and I'm excited about the information that we're going to share. Thank you very much, Bob, for having me. I've been really looking forward to today. Catherine, one of the questions that I always start with is, if you think back when you were a young child, what was it that you wanted to be when you grew up? When I was a young child, I was such a show-off that what I really wanted to be when I grew up was um, an actress, actually, and going to acting. And I did go to drama school, actually. And then, interestingly enough, when I left it, I really changed my mind about what it was I wanted to do. So, so yes, that's what I wanted to do when I, was, when I was a small child. And, Catherine, what were the transition moments that you have gone through from that picture of yourself as a young child, as an actress, to where you're at today? So, well, I left drama school and really wanted to travel. So I did a lot of traveling. I worked abroad a lot. And so you might hear from my accent. I'm from the United Kingdom. I'm just outside of London. And so I went and worked in Istanbul for a year. I worked in Spain. I worked in the Czech Republic. I worked in Poland. And that really gave me the chance to sort out my my travel. And I did teaching English as a foreign language a lot of the time while I was doing that. And then as always, you're getting older, you're trying to get back home to your country. So for me, it was what can I do that will take me back to working in the United Kingdom rather than always working abroad? And a friend of mine said to me, why don't you try recruitment? You know, you're nosy, you're loud, you're quite curious. I think you'd be quite good at it. So I did. And I started working recruitment over 15 years ago and I've never looked back really. And that was what took me from recruitment into what I do now, which is coaching clients who want to make a big career transition because I found the work that I did in recruitment was very much around the handholding really you know once you've got once you've had your interview once you've sorted out your resume a lot of my clients were then quite daunted quite nervous about this very big job that they were going to step into and were then trying to answer questions themselves like can I do it am I good enough so a lot of the work that I was doing recruitment was actually getting them to settle during their first 90 days and then that's what then took me into thinking actually I want to really focus on that now I really want to focus on on being client-centric with those people who are very nervous and lack confidence about going through a career transition. Catherine let's step back and 
think a little bit broader in terms of the recruitment world and the market in general. What is your prediction for the job market for 2023? I think 2023 is going to be an interesting year, which means interesting in positive ways, interesting, I think, in some negative ways. I think that we're still coming out of the uncertainty of 2022. But the good thing about it is that now we are getting back into the workplace. So we're settling back in again and we can see what's going to happen. And I think it's going to be fits and starts. We've still got political uncertainty. We've still got inflation. We've got some small businesses that are going out of business, but other businesses that are starting to do well. Surprisingly, a news item came up on the UK the other day that small towns are doing very well now because so many people work from home. So the city of London um, and the big cities might be losing out on um, people, but equally the small towns are doing quite well. So there's this whole change now as we start to adjust to being partly at home, partly in the office as we do remote working. And I think that for job seekers, it's all about how are they going to be much more intentional with their search as they go through the year rather than just hoping the right thing might turn up? It's very interesting about the small towns. I have not seen that, but that makes perfect sense. Any perspective on particular fields, industries that you expect to grow the most in the coming year? Well, we're hearing so much, aren't we, about how the healthcare industry is suffering and particularly in the UK. And I imagine it's the same in the US, whereby the healthcare industry has been completely overwhelmed. And certainly in the UK, there's a huge shortage of people working in the healthcare industry. And I'm sure it's probably the same way you are. Hospitality, as we all know, has been decimated globally. So there are lots of opportunities there just from working in restaurants to working in events to working in the travel industry. And then also in the past, I worked for in marketing and sales was my specialist field at a time when I did recruitment. And I know from that industry, there are a lot of jobs now coming up in marketing, again, because it is quite an uncertain industry. So I think a lot of people during lockdown, we were forced to review our lives, really. You know, what do I want for my life? I'm now, I've been forced to think about it. I think a lot of people are therefore changing from what they wanted before. They want much more now of a work-life balance. And for example, marketing is an industry that doesn't give you a lot of that, just as hospitality was an industry that didn't pay particularly well. So I think people are now re-evaluating what they want from their life as they go forward. And industries are going to have to respond to that as well. And Catherine, you've certainly had many years of recruiting experience. What are some of the most common mistakes that you've seen job seekers make when they are seeking employment? I think a lot of my clients have hoped that the right job is just going to leap out at them. Maybe somebody might even knock at their front door and offer them a a dream job. And I think that it starts with you working out what are your strengths? What's the value that you bring? How are you going to put that on your resume? And then what are the sectors that you're interested in? And within that, what are the style of companies you're interested in? And approaching them, being proactive. So rather than waiting for a job to be advertised on LinkedIn, which everybody is going to apply for, you know, statistically now they talk about the fact that only about 30% of jobs are advertised and the rest, it's about word of mouth or find it through your network. And when I worked in recruitment, I certainly found that to be the case. It's far more effective to use your network and use your extended network to find what it was you wanted to do rather than hoping that the right thing is going to just pop up. And you mentioned that finding your own 
personal strength was kind of a starting point. Mm -hmm. Any coaching in terms of how to do that? Yes. So what I do with my clients is I get them to think about when they think about their last role. When you started, what was it like? Where was the company up to? What was the difference that you made in your job? How do you know? How are you going to measure that? If you talk to your colleagues, what would they say about you when you're not in the room? If you talk to your clients, what would they say about you? And all of that then starts to paint a picture around your value. It can be quite difficult, I think, sometimes to understand the value that we bring. It feels a bit subjective, but you know, it's putting some measurability around what did you achieve? What was the difference that, that you made? And Catherine, I've heard you say before that it is important for you to know the value you bring to the company and that you should make certain that you match up your value with the company you're interviewing for. Talk yes, a little bit I, more about that. Yes, that's a good question. I think there's something around with my clients. I would often talk about checking that their personal style was a match to the company culture. So it's what's important to you that the company has in the way of values and then checking that the company has got those values and matching yourself to those values, because that will give you an understanding of what is their style of working so that you can be quite clear and match up on that. I think it is quite an important thing to do as you're going forwards. And Catherine, if you feel like you're stuck in your job search process, what should you do? What do you coach your clients to do when they feel like that? Oh, that's a really good one. Well, the first thing I get them to do is stand up and walk around the room because I actually find that physically moving starts to get you going mentally. So I think if you're stuck, it's usually for one of two reasons. It's either the case I'm stuck because I really don't know what it is I want to do or I'm stuck because I do know what it is I want to do, but I'm frightened about pursuing it. So I think it's to work out which of those it is. And usually when I drill down with my clients, it comes down to it's more about the fear factor rather than the fact that they really don't know what it is. And I think that what can keep us stuck as well is the fact that when we're looking to change a career, we fear not being an expert. So even if we're in a job that we're not happy in, we're accustomed to being good at that job. So whether we're an accountant or we're a lawyer, we're used to the fact that we are an expert in our field, we're knowledgeable, and we are the go-to person. But when you're making a change, you're going back to being a learner. And we don't like being in that scenario because we associate learning as having a risk of failing. So there might be success, but there's also a risk of failure. So I think it is the case of when we're going into that learner mode, I work with my clients on ways that they can move forward from that quite quickly. And that might be getting mentors in place. It might be seeking advice. It might be managing their perfectionism. And then also asking acceleration questions. What's your plan for being a competent and fast learner that's going to get you back into your comfort zone again and feeling more like an expert? Those two ends of that may cause someone to be stuck, don't know what you want to do, or the fear factor. Do you see one or the other more frequently? And is one or the other easier to coach someone through? If I think with a fear factor, the fear goes when the client suddenly has a eureka moment that says, this is what I really want to do. So at that point, it's then all of the obstacles they've had before then tend to disappear when they hit upon, this is what it is. This is what I've worked out that I want to do. So 
I give my clients before we start working together, I give them a task to do, which is to reflect on their career over the last. It's either reflecting on their career of the last five years or reflecting on their last five jobs. And before they see me, I ask them to score those jobs out of 10 for how much they enjoyed them. And it might be the case the score changes from the beginning towards the end. So what you might enjoy at the beginning, perhaps you didn't enjoy at the end. And I also ask as well to think about what the change was during the job and what they notice. And then also, once they've done that task, to recognise patterns. And a lot of clients find that quite useful to work out what their patterns are. And that then can go towards managing the fear, because the fear can sometimes just come out of a lack of understanding about what am I good at and what can I do, and also dealing with their worst case scenarios. Catherine, I read somewhere is that for every no that you receive in the recruiting process, you need to recognize that this is their loss and not your loss. What does that statement mean to you? And how can you live that more during your job search? That is a good question. And as you were saying that, I immediately completed a sentence in my head because I used to work in recruitment, which in itself was a sales job. You're trying to place candidates all the time. And therefore, I had clients saying to me a lot of the time, well, no, we fill the vacancy or no, we're not interested or no, you're not on our on our roster. And how I've always managed it is to say to myself, it's no, not at the moment. And that can change. And I found that much more reassuring rather than it's no forever and a day. And I found as well by saying that to myself, I took it less personally rather than the fact of its rejection. What I say to my clients is that when they come out of the interview, the first thing I like them to do is to sit down with a pen and paper and work out what they did well in the interview and what they could do differently. So again, they see that as being a learning process rather than, again, we obviously all want to get a job out of it, but again, it's trying to make that a learning process for ourselves rather than success versus failure. And it also then helps them manage what they think the client might say in response to that. But I will always say to them, and I always say to myself, it's no, not at the moment. So you're not right at the moment. But that can change in the future. And that I find is quite an optimistic way of looking at no rather than just I'm going to personalize that and take it internally. Catherine, you talk about that pen and paper. That leads me to something that I coach my clients about keeping a journal of your successes and your challenges during your job search. Do you think that's a good idea? I think it's a fantastic idea. And I think that it also then it turns your job search as well again into a learning process. I'm very I'm very keen on this around the fact that you're seeing it as a process that you can build competency around. And I think that if you're making a note of, I would say not so much success and failure, but what I did well and what I could do differently is a more positive way of looking at it. And then how am I going to apply that going forward is a very confidence building exercise to do and it's something that you can also look back on because I think a job search takes longer than we think it's going to. If you can look back over the last week and see just how you've moved forward in that time, that can be quite reassuring for yourself. Catherine, I read in a couple of surveys that almost 75% of job seekers use online applications to get in the door with only about a 2% success rate in landing interviews using that approach. Whereas if you use a referral 
either someone inside the company or someone outside of the company referring you, it's probably 60 or 70% of the hires occur using that approach. What do you take from that? I would say that that, to me, makes sense. I think the most important thing when you're looking for a job is you actually want to feel in control. There have been so many things outside of your control. So I think that if you're using online and waiting for the right job to be advertised, you've got no control over that. But if you actually are aware of these are my skills, this is the value that I bring to the company, and these are the kinds of companies I'm interested in, and then you go through to your network. And in fact, it has been shown that it's not your second contact, but it's the third or the fourth connection that helps you get the job. So therefore, you're asking your network, this is who do you know? Who who else should I be speaking to? And it feels far more positive than playing that waiting game of um, seeing who's going to come through. And I think as well as that, for companies, they like to have somebody who's being endorsed. They like to have a referral. It helps to helps them to get an understanding of you before you join them. So I think that that's a useful thing as well. I think it works well for all concerned. And I certainly think that I know from when I was in recruitment, for example, I would have a lot of jobs coming through and I'd advertise some of them, but not all of them, partly because I didn't have time to advertise them all, partly because some of them I thought I'm going to get a lot of resumes coming through. I haven't got time to see all of them. So I think that that's a factor as well. Plus the other thing as well, is that if you're using referrals, you can actually speak to somebody at the point of which they're thinking about the fact that they have got a recruitment need and they could then start to actually build the job around you and your skills. Because I think that also for companies, they have an idea of what they need, but it can be difficult for them sometimes to think, oh, right, this is the exact person. And then they've got to take the time to write the job description and so on. So if you are proactive, you can actually get there before something's being advertised generally and get in the door that way, which I think is a good thing to do. And Catherine, how would you coach one of your clients to use LinkedIn to help build that third and fourth level of referrals and contacts? Well, I would say you need to be very clear about your headline. So you're looking at putting there in there the job titles that you want to be found under and that you think your new company will use. So for example, if you have an unusual job title yourself, it might be worth thinking about what's a more common job title to use in there. Um, and I also spend time with my clients thinking about the about section. So what are the key words in that that you can be found under as well so somebody can find you in a search? And then it is being very, once you've clarified what it is that you want to do, I think that using LinkedIn and using referrals is helpful when you've got an idea about what it is that you want to do and you've worked out what it is you've got to offer. And then you can go to your network to say, you know, who do you think I should be speaking to? Who do you think I should be speaking to is a really useful question. And you cannot use that too much, I don't think, on LinkedIn, because somebody will always want to pass you along. And that's what you want. So using LinkedIn, it's it, it's a networking site in some ways, more than a, a jobs board. And so therefore, it's all the time. It's how am I going to build my network? Who can this person introduce me to and pass me along? And people are I find people on LinkedIn are quite helpful and willing to do that if you're clear about what it is you're asking. Because most of us now are, we have awareness of the fact that there are people out there looking for jobs and we want to help them rather than just leaving them to, to um, blow in the wind over it. Catherine, let's switch gears here a little bit. I know that you've talked and written a great deal about imposter syndrome. 
Can you, for our listeners, describe what it is and the characteristics of it that come about during a job search? So imposter syndrome is that horrible feeling of feeling like a fraud or feeling that you're going to be found out and that you're not good enough. And I think that when we go through a job transition, it can be very easy for us to have that feeling because there's an identity change. So imposter syndrome, if you like, is the gap between where we are and how we think we need to be in order to be successful. So, of course, if we're going through a job search, we've left behind that old identity of our old job and we don't have the new identity of a new job. And therefore, the feeling of being like an imposter can jump right in there. So what I talk to my clients around is what are you at the moment? And the answer comes back. Well, actually, I'm your new identity is that of being a job seeker. So I think it is the case of adapting to this new identity of being a job seeker and then thinking about what is it around being a job seeker that's going to make me feel confident and therefore what do I need to put in place in order to be a competent and confident job seeker. And I think that that is a way of tying us over that. But I do think that it's something that we can all experience. So, for example, statistics show that over 70 percent of the population will experience imposter syndrome at some point in their career. And that applies to both men and to women. And I think it's very likely to happen when we go through a career transition because there is that identity gap then, as I said, between what we've left behind and we haven't got our future identity. And I think it can be very helpful, though, for us to know that we might feel really alone when we've got this, but actually we're not alone. There are so many other people who feel exactly the same way as we do and wake up at 3 a.m. in the morning feeling stressed and anxious. And can you have this imposter syndrome and not know it? Yes, is the answer, probably. You might hear from my voice, I'm very careful about labeling because I think you don't want to say somebody you've got imposter syndrome because that's a label and people then can think oh it sounds really complicated hard to get rid of but I think that imposter syndrome shows up in many ways through many different behaviors for example perfectionism is a classic way because and certainly when we're doing our job search we can we can create all sorts of complicated rules for ourselves you know I must sit down and look for a job eight hours a day I need to do it this way and I think that we put these this perfectionism these processes in place to protect ourselves from failure and another is if we're going through a career transition and stepping up into a big promotion, another story that we tell ourselves is I have to be an expert. I have to be an expert before I can step up into a promotion, which isn't true, but we feel that that's true. So there are various stories that we tell ourselves around imposter syndrome, but those two are the key ways that we recognize it, as well as being maybe Superman, Superwoman. I'm looking for a job. I've also got to take the kids to school, get dinner on the table, clean the house. And so I've got all these jobs to do around that. And I can't fit it all in. And again, That's a story we're telling ourselves about the fact that we've got to be uh, managing loads of things at the same time and doing it to a very high standard. So there are different behaviours that show up as imposter syndrome. Catherine, are there any groups or types of job seekers who may be more susceptible to this imposter syndrome? That's a good question, actually. I've always said it's marketeers and salespeople, and that's based in some ways more on my experience rather than there's been a scientific study behind it. But I would say that if you're in marketing, you're only as good as your last creative idea. 
which means that you're constantly trying setting the bar ever higher for yourself and therefore you're going to fall short about it and that is I think you know classic example of imposter syndrome I think also as well if you're in sales you're being so target driven you're constantly looking again to raise the bar you're being probably getting too wedded to process and driving your team too hard, not allowing them to be autonomous enough. So again, that is a classic case. And I think in the workplace, how to recognise in others, I do feel that people in the workplace who come across as being maybe bullying or a bit abrasive probably have imposter syndrome, that fear of being found out because they haven't worked out who do I want to be in my role? How do I want to come across? And what do I want people to say about me? when I'm not in the room. They haven't answered those questions. So therefore, they are still then unclear around their identity. Trying to stay away from labeling, and I agree with you on that. But if you do have some characteristics of imposter syndrome in your job search, does that oftentimes spill over into other parts of your life? Or can you keep it very segmented and siloed in one area or two areas of of your life? I think if you're experiencing it during a job search, I'd imagine all your friends and all your family are going to know that you're experiencing that because you're going to be quite difficult to live with because it's driven by fear. I think the thing about imposter syndrome is, and this is partly why the voice wakes up at three o'clock in the morning, is because at the bottom of imposter syndrome is this fear of what Valerie Young in her book, The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women, called our crusher. And so our crusher is there to protect us from feelings of shame. So if you think about it, when we're looking for a job and when we're finding it difficult, or we've been laid off, we feel shame. And during the day, we hide from those feelings. We don't sit with them. So when you're hiding away from your feelings, it's going to make you more anxious and you're going to be having a lot of difficult behaviours in order not to address those feelings. So yes, I think the other, I think it would definitely spill over into other areas of our lives. And you kind of touched on this, but you know, when you lose your job, many feel that they've lost their identity, their personal identity. How can you deal with this emotion? You have lost your identity. You've lost your old identity. That's certainly true. And I think it is acknowledging that can actually help you to start to manage that. And so therefore, the question that you're, you're trying to answer for yourself is, so I've lost that old identity. What is my current identity? And I think it's important to have that interim identity because we're thinking, oh, I won't have another identity now until I get a new job. But I think that if you take on board the identity of actually now I am a job seeker. So what kind of job seeker do I want to be? What do I need to be an effective job seeker? How will I know I'm being effective? That can give you an identity that can be an anchor for you while you're looking in order to find the new job that will give you the new identity. I think it's unavoidable, but I do think it helps to sit down and recognize that and acknowledge that and to also understand that that will go. You might have these feelings that we call imposter syndrome, and they will go. You don't have to have an imposter life. Catherine, any books or other resources that you would recommend to someone as they're going through their own personal transition? So, yes. I mean, there are two books. One is called Ditching Imposter Syndrome by Claire Yosa, which is spelled J-O-S-A. 
And another very good book is by Valerie Young called The Secret Thoughts of Successful Women. And in fact, she wanted to call the book The Secret Thoughts of Successful People, but the publisher said that didn't scan very well. She said quite rightly, both men and women experience imposter syndrome. What I do with my clients is, as well as getting them to write down the list of achievements, I also get them to write down a plan for their job search, which I know sounds quite simplistic in some ways, but I think it's important for us to sit with and find a plan for what is our worst case scenario. So with my clients who are feeling really nervous and really anxious, I'll actually say to them, well, let's just say it's three years time, you haven't got a job, what steps did you not take that could have helped to achieve that? And they then write themselves a rescue plan. And they find that, although when they start to do it, they're feeling it's their worst case scenario, they actually find by writing a plan around it and by writing all the stages to avoid it happening again, that it actually covers the most basic step by step by step detail of a detailed plan for them. And it's, it's you know, it's, it's their safety plan. And then on the flip side, I'll also then say to them, right, OK, well, let's write down then. Um, let's take the scenario. You've got your dream job. What are the steps that you've taken to get that? And it's the plan is has to be very, very detailed. You can't miss out on a single step. If you miss out on a single step, that's what's going to leave you with what's called an open loop that's going to leave you stressed and waking up at three o'clock in the morning. But if you've got this very detailed plan, you can then see it's very reassuring for you to see all the steps you can take. And what a lot of people realize, actually, is that they have far more power or authority, if you like, to take control of the situation than they think they have. For example, when it comes to reaching out to other people in the network, what stops us doing that is normally our fear of feeling a bit uncomfortable or what would they think, or I might feel a bit, a bit lacking confidence. I'm going to wait until I feel more confident. So when you actually get them to write out these detailed scenarios for the worst case scenario and what could be done differently to avoid that, and the best case scenario, what can be done to ensure that happens, they people then realize actually, you know, I am my own agent. I can actually affect the future that I want for myself here. And that feels quite empowering rather than just waiting and hoping that something, the right thing comes along your way. Catherine, if you could summarize for us the three things that you want our listeners to take away from today's session, what are those three things? I would say be prepared to feel unconfident because you will feel unconfident. You're not alone. About 70% of the population will experience imposter syndrome at some point in their career, usually going through a career transition. And if you look around you, all these seemingly confident, successful people probably inside have got imposter syndrome and have that fear of being found out. And these feelings will pass. You know, I would end by saying you might have an imposter moment, but you don't have to live an imposter life. Catherine, as I anticipated, this was going to be a great session. You provided so many useful, actionable items for our listeners. I'm so pleased that we had the opportunity to do this recording. And thank you once again for your time. Thank you so much for having me, Bob. I've really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We're working in unprecedented times. The purpose of these episodes is to give you the support and critical tools to adjust with the changing marketplace. I'll continue to introduce you to guests who have successfully survived their own obstacle course and can share useful information. 
If today's message was helpful to you, please share it on your social media. Your review and rating helps get this to more people. Also, if you have questions or podcast ideas for future conversations, reach out to me on LinkedIn. Change is constant. The more prepared you are for it, the better and easier the change will occur. Thank you again. This is your host, Bob Gerst. See you at our next episode.